1: And welcome to Biz Today, I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. In today's program, we'll talk about thousands have gathered in Davos for the World Economic Forum and U.S. President Joe Biden announced the launch of a new regional economic initiative in the Asia-Pacific region. And now let's begin with our top story thousands of business people investors and leaders have gathered in davos for this week's world economic forum they discuss the political and financial policies around the world and this year's meeting is the first in-person gathering since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. This time around, the focus is on the Russian-Ukraine conflict, the global inflation issues, and fast approaching climate emission deadlines. So for more on this, join us on the line now are Dr. Wang Dan, Chief Economist of Bank China, and also Anna Tangan, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. So first, now let's talk about the Davos meeting. And this year's theme is uh, History at a Turning Point, Government Policies and Business Strategies. So the Davos meeting is taking place at the most crucial geopolitical and geoeconomic moment. So Dan, how do you look at this moment?
2: Well, this moment has shown that the world is going through a very deep transition. Uh, there are a lot of problems in the world. Uh, we have seen this theme to be uh, centering around the Ukraine war, uh, the prolonged inflation and the food crisis. Um, ultimately, there has to be some structural reform politically uh, to fundamentally solve those problems. And the government also need to rely on industrial policies to reach the environmental goals. And these things can incorporate the the companies and uh, different levels of government. But uh, for our country, the state government probably will play the most critical role.
1: And it comes at a time of rising uncertainty, as you mentioned, uh, stemming from the Russia-Ukraine conflict, the prospect of uh, slowing economic recovery globally, and the pandemic, the climate change. But when facing all these challenges, where can we start? And what kind of uh, multinational cooperation do we need?
2: Um, The lack of policy coordination between countries have been a long-lasting problem. Uh, The countries had done a relatively good job after the 2008 financial crisis, but things have been going downhill since then. And this time after the pandemic, it just seems more divisive between continents and between countries with different ideologies. And we have seen that the companies actually are stepping up, providing more solutions, and they care mostly about employment or the quitting of the employment. Uh, they care about the diversification of supply chains and how to invest, how to diversify the risks. So I think one solution is to give maybe more of the market access to companies, to so global companies. And they can, uh, in a relative term, uh, have an easier time to form a solution to solve some of the most urgent problems.
1: So Aina, so talking about the global economy, according to a survey in the Global Risks Report published earlier this year by the WEF, only 16% of global experts feel positive and optimistic about the outlook for the world. And just 11% believe the global recovery will accelerate. So what's your take on the prospects of the global economy?
0: I maintain that uh, it's not a question of a recession. The recession is a given. Uh, The real question is whether we're going to go into depression and how long that will last. Uh, World debt levels, the fact that uh, inflation is not controllable by fiscal and monetary means. Uh, This is about true shortages. And that means that there's going to be a fight and it's going to be about price. uh, Who who gets fed and who doesn't? And we're already starting to see, we've seen that in Sri Lanka. You're going to see that in more and more countries. So, I mean, while everybody knows it's going down, no one knows where the bottom is. And this is uh, really the issue.
1: So then the IMF chief Kristalina Georgieva predicted that this year, the year 2022, will be a tough year, and she declined to rule out a global recession. So what's your take on which countries or regions will be at most risk for recession?
2: Um, She's not wrong that uh, there is a high chance that the least developing world will get even harder time in the coming years. Uh, And every country knows the possibility that they might turn into, uh, maybe not the extent of the Sri Lanka problem, but there can be social unrest if uh, there is uh, unequal redistribution of wealth or uh, insufficient help to the vulnerable groups. Um, but I'm not that pessimistic about uh, the immediate future. Um, since we are all in this transition together, um, people usually overreact when things go down. Uh, as soon as uh, the current shortage and pandemic can be under control to a certain extent, uh, as long as uh, the Ukraine war don't extend to a unlimited period of time, the world will forge ahead. It is at least one scenario and it's not an unlikely one. So I kept thinking about the situation after the Second World War. Uh, everybody is very pessimistic during and right after the war. Uh, the rebuilding was very difficult as well, but it turns out many of the initiatives uh, happened back then and the collaboration between countries back then have laid the foundation for the prosperity in the following 50 years.
1: So, Dan, what do you think can be done to boost the global economic recovery and narrow the recovery gaps between different countries at the same time?
2: Uh, The world needs a new uh, growth engine, and that's a consensus. It also needs a new way of collaboration between businesses and governments. Uh, and most countries have realized the potential of climate change-related industries uh, because it will change the way the productions are organized and it will force an upgrade in the industrial supply chains. Uh, for developing countries, one bottleneck for them is new infrastructures. Um, and that can help them to transcend industrial phases. They don't need to wait from being an agricultural economy to industrial economy and to take over industrial allocations from other developed countries. They could just directly participate in the new energy and the environmental related industries to have a kind of leap forward. But the precondition is that they need help in financing for those infrastructures. Mm -hmm.
1: And also the chief economics outlook report at the uh, WEF said the world is facing the worst food insecurity. So Aina, so how serious is the reality of this problem and how are energy and food related to each other?
0: Well, they're directly related. I mean, uh, you need energy to produce food. So when the cost of energy goes up, the cost of food goes up. Uh, Right now, uh, because of the Ukrainian situation, a big chunk of uh, agriculture has been taken off the table. And uh, because of that, there are going to be shortages. But it's worse than that, because going forward in the next couple of years, there's also a shortage in terms of fertilizers. Uh, Fertilizers are also made uh, with energy. And as a result, uh, the cost uh, in future years to create the crops that you need to feed people is going to go up. So all indications are that the pr- price of food is not only going to go up this year, but it's going to go up in the succeeding years until there's an adjustment um, period where uh, the food uh, you know, supply uh, is equalized with the food demand. But uh, once again, during that period, there's going to be very, very high inflation, and this is not something that, you know, uh, countries are prepared for. We've never been in a situation, I mean, the, uh, like this since the Great Depression, uh, when you actually had problems with uh, getting the basics, necessities of life. Uh, the, the global financial crisis, 2008 and 9, people lost their homes, they lost their pensions, but they did not uh, lose the ability to buy food. Uh, they did not have, and you know, countries were not facing the reality of uh, being unable to operate their economies simply because they can't afford energy. So this is a real problem. And in terms of how it has to be addressed, it requires a global solution. The US, China, uh, uh, EU, Russia, everybody has to come together and recognize the severity of this and stop calculating uh, who's going to be the biggest loser and start figuring out that, look, the global south and the stands are, we know. They're going to be the ones who who suffer. They're the least developed. They have all of these issues. Uh, It's time that they come together, uh, not only on this momentary crisis, but I do agree with Dan that there has to be a transition to a more efficient future. And that means uh, towards something where you have more sustainable energy and food.
1: And then also while the inflation expectations are highest in the US followed by the Europe, further declines in real wages are predicted in both the high and low income economies. So what does this mean and how do people feel about it in their daily life and how serious is it for the economy?
2: Um, The real wages have a big pressure of slowing down. Uh, It's partly because of uh, the high inflation that can erode the real value of money. And it's partly because uh, the recession is underway. So that means the nominal wage will also slow. Uh, right now, the U.S. economy still looks in uh, very good shape. Uh, but there is no guarantee that the current situation can sustain with interest rate hike from the Federal Reserve and the possible stock market problems uh, associated with the higher interests. Um, So the U.S. government now is trying to do a lot of the things, but it just seems that the domestic political situation has prevented it from doing meaningful fiscal expansion, like to renovate and upgrade uh, the infrastructure in the country. And that's probably the most needed step.
1: And we will also talk about the challenges to the globalization, Aina. So are we still seeing the globalization that we desire or as a lot of people claimed or mentioned, the globalization is ending and uh, we are seeing the deglobalization trend?
0: Well, I, I deglobalization is a, is a big word because it, it gives a sense that everybody's just packing up their bags and going home and or erecting um, barriers like the U.S. is doing. But that's not true. Uh, when you start looking at RCEP and uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, uh, you know, the successor to TPP, uh, it's clear that regionalization is forming. Uh, and I, I like to use the, that, that model if you start looking at the world terms of the three economic areas. You you have basically Europe, you have North America with Mexico and Canada, and then you have uh, Asia. And Asia is the only complete uh, economy because they have both huge markets and the production cap- capability. You don't have that in the EU or the United States, not to the same extent. So uh, right now you see the regionalization going on in Asia that bodes very well for Asia to continue to exceed Uh, world norms in terms of GDP gains, et cetera, et cetera. But for the rest of the world, it's going to be very, very difficult. And, you know, let's make it clear. When we start talking about, you know, losses in real income, because, you know, while wages are going up by, you know, three or 4%, unfortunately, inflation is going up by 8.5%. That means the people at the very bottom are going to be the most impacted. All right, that really hurts them. They just have less money. Uh, for the essentials. And they don't, you know, they're not buying uh, Gucci and Apple watches. Uh, What they're doing is trying to put bread on the table and they're going to be impacted. That is going to cause a social unrest. There are political consequences to that. And right now, I don't see anything uh, that the Fed is doing that is addressing that.
1: So Dan, so how do you think about Asia? Tell me more about uh, where do you think Asia is and how do you look at China, the second largest economy in the world, its role in the global economic growth right now?
2: Uh, Asia is the fastest growing region for the world in the past decade. And the major contributor, of course, is China and ASEAN countries around it. That also depends on the supply chain resilience in China. Um, Right now, the Asian economy are having various problems, but the economic momentum is good and nobody can deny that in the long run, a country's growth uh, would ultimately depend on the labor, capital and technology. And when the capital is relatively constrained in the long term, then a large populated country would have a lot of advantages. Um, Because for a small country, even if you're very rich, it might be not as important or influential in global matters and in your manufacturing capacity. And for a lot of Asian countries, uh, according to the UN forecast, uh, by 2030, they would be among the largest 10 countries in the world, uh, including like uh, China, India, and uh, uh, several other ASEAN countries. Uh, the U.S. is still in top 10, but still it is declining in its ranks. So that means the long-term growth potential is really shifting to the east, and Asia will be at the center of this
1: and then so also talk about the global supply chain or the global value chain issue these are very crucial particularly now when when we are facing the difficulties worldwide for countries and economies to survive so we see some adjustment of this uh, uh, global supply chain so what's the reality of it Uh,
2: the global supply chain is undergoing some significant changes, uh, like the regionalization that Aina mentioned, uh, the pace isn't that fast. Like We have seen the kind of shift since 2012 uh, from China to countries uh, like Vietnam, like Mexico, They're, they've taken over some of the low-end supply chain production from China. Um, But eventually, uh, every business knows you depend on the network of supply chains. It's not just individual uh, countries and a segment of the supply chain. So I can see a more integrated regional uh, network in the future. Uh, It won't be just restricted within one or two countries. Uh, It might be a more uh, realistically be within uh, relatively big trading blocks. Uh, In Asia, it's centering around China, and in in America, it's centering around the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. Um, And in Europe, of course, centering around Italy and Germany. Um, But uh, the parallel system in the supply chain uh, would be a total waste of investment. And I don't think uh, a world in potential recession actually need that kind of move at this point.
1: Mm, so, Aina, so people say that we are now in a transition, but how do you see this transition? Where are we in this transition so far?
0: Well, I, I think uh, what both Dan and I were talking about in terms of these three economic zones, uh, East, Europe, and uh, North America, uh, is really uh, the story of this transition. It's uh, The transition is uh, wealth moving from uh, West to East. Uh, it's about the breakdown of the post-World War II order uh, and the struggle to uh, deal with a multipolar world and all that entails. Now, you know, when I talk about a multipolar world, I don't envision anything that's very easy. You're going to have a lot mm-hmm. of players at the table. It's going to be harder to, uh, to you know, coalesce them. Uh, they have very, very divergent views. Uh, you could see this happening even with the uh, the Quad and things like this. Uh, India kind of pushing off on its own, um, and this and this is going to be uh, the real challenge. But this transition is about pl- politics and economics shifting eastward.
1: Well, we're speaking with Aina Tengen, senior fellow at the Taihe Institute, and also Wang Dan, chief economist of Hansen Bank China. And after a short break, we'll take a look at US President Joe Biden announced the launch of a new regional economic initiative in the Asia Pacific region. Stay with us.
0: Hello, this is Michael Zhang. Greetings from Los Angeles of the Golden State of California. Thank you today for making me part of your team. I truly enjoy the debates we had and look forward
2: to many more in the years to come.
1: You are listening to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. U.S. President Joe Biden announced the launch of a new regional economic initiative in the Asia-Pacific region. That is the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. China's Ministry of Commerce has responded to it. A spokesperson said, China believes the success of the Asia-Pacific economy benefits from openness and mutually beneficial win-win cooperation. And relevant initiatives should contribute to the prosperity and the development of the region and remain open and inclusive rather than discriminatory and exclusive. So, Aina, first of all, how much do we know about the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, which uh, President Joe Biden unveiled earlier this week?
0: So far, we've seen uh, it's a set of standards. It uh, talks about, you know, uh, infrastructure and green development, things like that. It, they they brought forward this number of fifty billion, uh, which seems to be a one-off um, uh, amount. Uh, Contrast that with the fact that uh, China is putting sixty billion around, plus or minus, into. Um, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative on a yearly basis, and you understand the the difference uh, that uh, exists between these, um, not perhaps competing, but very different ideas. So um, some people say it's, a, a t- it's just a talk shop. It was the only viable alternative that Biden had because he cannot actually join a uh, like TPP or a, a RCEP because there would be too much domestic concern about this. Uh, he would never have the votes to get it through. So he wanted to appear like he's doing something without actually having to commit the United States.
1: And then so the have focuses on four main areas, the digital economy, supply chains, clean energy infrastructure and anti-corruption measures. So it seems that the supply chain is the major concern, you know, especially regarding the chips. So how worried should we be?
2: Uh, Well, the supply chain uh, surrounding the chip industry has been a long headache for China. And uh, I don't think this new deal, the IPEF, will exert additional pressure in this industry. Um, Because the biggest problem for China is that since the trade war um, that happened in 2016, there was a de facto um, decoupling for the high-tech industry. Uh, China has already turned its policy more inward by trying to rely on the indigenous innovation. Um, And the IPEF is trying to uh, set up this supply chain Uh, around China, uh, incorporating uh, Japan and Korea especially, uh, trying to strengthen an alternative supply chain for the industry. Uh, The constraints that this initiative can put in China for this industry will be very limited um, because there is no real commitment from those countries at this point.
1: So, Aina, what kind of possible impact is that going to have on China's high-tech industry? Do you think?
0: Well, it, it's not going to have any. I mean, this is no different from the uh, you know, U.S. initiatives to try to cut China off uh, from you know, vital pieces of technology that are needed. Whether it's a Dutch company that does the uh, laser uh, lithography—and not laser—it's uh, forget the term. It's a high-speed high light X-ray uh, lithography. Uh, or, you know, Intel chips, et cetera. So this is just uh, the U.S. going out and saying, look, we're, we're trying to do something here and we're trying to hold uh, China accountable. Make no mistake, this was aimed directly at China. You know, as Zandan said, almost all these countries, uh, you know, uh, China is uh, India's number two trade partner. Uh, and both Japan and uh, South Korea, um, you know, they have extensive uh needs to sell into China. So they're very, very conflicted. So at this, at this point, Australia, um, they're very concerned about, you know, the shape of the future, especially over these next couple of years when things turn tough. Uh, Will they be able to resume a normal trade uh, relationship with China? Uh, That is uppermost on the mind of their new um, premier. And uh, it's going to be uh, an interesting dance. I mean, you have uh, basically all of these countries, as I said, they have different agendas. They're not being pulled under the U.S. agenda. Uh, they're basically, the U.S. is saying, oh, let's get together and show China that, you know, we're unified. But each one of those countries has a slightly different interpretation of what they want from these uh, kind of uh, events and uh, initiatives.
1: And, Aina, uh, so some analysts also say the half won't be effective as other countries want the U.S. market by getting lower tariffs, which the U.S. voters don't want. So what's your take on that?
0: Oh, absolutely correct. That's what I was saying earlier. I mean, there's no domestic uh, will to uh, open up the U.S. market. Uh, you know, if you start looking at the trade deficits, they're higher than ever. Um, there's no real desire to invest in the United States, despite you know tr- triumphing that Hyundai is going to you know open up a multi-billion-dollar factory in the U.S. and that you know last year. Um, Samsung opened up a major chip uh, company there, Um, you know, all of the onshoring of the basic things, the things Dan uh, was talking about earlier, you know, clothes, shoes, et cetera. That's not going to happen. They couldn't even afford to pay the wages or be competitive if they did. Mm -hmm. You know, I I don't understand how they don't make the connection between the fact that China is a big market. And if the U.S. pushes itself out of the Chinese market, that opens it up to Europeans uh, and to other Asian nations. And uh, the only one who will lose out in that in the long run will be the United States.
1: And then Singapore's prime minister, uh, Lee Sien-Lung said in an interview that the APAF is not a free trade deal and his country also welcomes China to join the CPTPP. So it's not a free trade deal, but what really is it? And what do you make of the response from the ASEAN member states?
2: Uh, it is not the kind of free trade deal like a CPTPP. Uh, it has the trade, uh, part of the trade clause in it. Um, but the way the deal is set up, it doesn't really need congressional approval. Uh, and for the exact reason that I had mentioned, uh, Joe Biden wants to get around any of the domestic host- hostilities and a congressional constraints. Um, but this also means that the U.S. doesn't have much to offer. Uh, so far, when it comes to the U.S. strategy uh, in trade for Asian countries, uh, and also the neighbors, including Russia, uh, the major uh, trade policy was actually through punitive measures, uh, through tariffs, sanctions, export controls, uh, and other kind of uh, punitive financial measures. But the U.S. doesn't really provide alternative economic opportunities for Asian countries. Uh, I think uh, before 2024, uh, no Asian country would truly commit to a deal that are targeting China so directly. Uh, They will need to wait and see who's the new president in the U.S. is first and see what else they can get out of this deal.
1: Mm-hmm. Well we've been speaking with Wang Dan, Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China and also Aina Tiangen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Biz Today. I'm Jiaoyang Yang in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening.